Hello, I'm John Meacham, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, and I'd like to welcome you to Unity Talks. This is a series of conversations hosted by the project's co-chairs with experts from the media, the academy, and government on the challenges facing American democracy. Here at the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, we're seeking to restore and reinvigorate the national discourse, supplanting reflexive partisanship with reflective citizenship, anchored on facts and evidence. As you'll see in these episodes, a unity of opinion in an open democratic society is impossible. A unity of purpose, however, is achievable and necessary. Hopefully, these conversations, hosted by me and by former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam and Vanderbilt's Summer Ali, will reinvigorate our shared commitment to American democracy and remind us of our obligations as active participants in this unfolding American experiment. Hi, I'm John Meacham, uh, the Carolyn T. and Robert M. Rogers Chair in the American Presidency at uh, the Vanderbilt University, uh, the uh, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, and delighted to welcome you to the last of our summer Unity Talks, uh, which is not an oxymoron, so that's important to remember, uh, with my good friend, uh, the legendary, which also just kind of means you're old as well when you're described as legendary, uh, Keel Hunt. Uh, columnist uh, for uh, USA Today Network, uh, former special assistant to Lamar Alexander, and for our purposes, uh, the author of a very important book called Crossing the Isle, about bipartisanship in the state of Tennessee heading into the 21st century, and how uh, in a countercultural example to where we are now, the state of Tennessee, a big complicated uh, place, actually practiced a kind of unity that produced a more prosperous state and what sort of where we are now, where we go forward, most important, the lessons from that experience for everybody. <clears throat> so you don't have to be a Tennessee dork uh, as Keel and I are uh, to uh, get something out of this. So Keel, welcome and thank you. Uh, and I, I just want to kick off with uh, a pretty basic question. Uh, take us back to say 1990 or so in the state of Tennessee. Uh, today, a very red state, uh, but put us back 88, 90, 92, tell us who was in office, tell us what the forces were and what that helped produce in that decade. Good question, thanks John. Um, well, the, uh, 1990 was, to me, um, and as I try to describe in the, uh, in the book, Crossing the Isle, uh, it was what I call the in-between time. And that, that refers to how Tennessee was a thoroughly blue state, you know, up until, um, well, toward the in, middle of the 1980s, um, our uh, and then now we're not right. I mean, <laughs> we're in, in so many different measures, the composition of our congressional delegation, makeup of our legislature, who holds the three statewide offices. Uh, it's almost today the uh, well, it pretty much is the the opposite of what the state politically was then. And there are a lot of good and important reasons why that happened. 
uh, why the in-between time became bookended by these uh, sort of hyper-partisan periods. Um, but so um, uh, in 1970, I'll dip back a little bit deeper than you asked, but in 1970, um, uh, Winfield Dunn was elected governor uh, from Chattanooga. Basically, nobody uh, who practiced politics had ever heard of him. He was a, a dentist in Memphis and had been the, the chairman of the local county Republican Party. Um, but he and some other close associates, uh, Harry Welford, uh, certainly uh, Howard Baker from the east end of the state, um, had uh, already been pretty successful in their goal to uh, make Tennessee a bipartisan you know, voting state. Um, Howard Baker had, had been elected in the sixties. Uh, he, had, and, um, uh, and so in 1970, Winfield Dunn, uh, was elected governor, surprising everybody in the political establishment. Um, and in the process, a lot of other names, uh, who we now generally know well, uh, came into the picture of our politics in the state. And, uh, one was uh, Lamar Alexander, who was Winfield Dunn's campaign manager at that point. Uh, he'd previously worked uh, for a little while in the Nixon White House um, and, and others. And so uh, it didn't happen overnight, of course. Um, uh, Alexander was elected in um, 78, um, and uh, he had... Um, he, he had run once before in 1974. This is actually the year I met Lamar uh, when I was a reporter for the Tennessean newspaper covering his campaign in 74. But he lost that race to uh, Ray Blanton. And that opened up a whole other storyline that, uh, <laughs> you know, is pretty right. well known now. That's, but, the, uh, that's the true crime version that we'll get into later. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we live in a moment uh, now in, in 2022, where law enforcement uh, and the complicated, porous border between political malfeasance and potential criminality, this is all very top of mind right now in the country. Right. How do you enforce the law in a partisan atmosphere? Uh, Tennessee has a live example, a uh, historical example of how that can happen. Yes, sir. And so if you would take us to uh, uh, 1978, Lamar Alexander has won the governorship. Uh, Ray Blanton, the, a Republican, Ray Blanton, a Democrat, is in the governor's mansion. Take it from there. <clears throat> well, this 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 did become a turning point. Uh, but, but in particular, they. Um, uh, so Ray Blanton, Democrat, had been elected governor um, in 1974. Um, there, there were there were so many Democrats running in that primary that year. Uh, there were a dozen uh, Democrat candidates that Blanton actually won the Democrat nomination with only 23 percent of the primary vote. So we don't have a, you know, we don't have runoffs in state primaries even now. And so he got in kind of on a fluky vote. Um, and, um, and so, so then the, the nominees and Alexander got the Republican nomination that, 
summer. Um, so, the, so all this crowded field is down to these two guys as the party nominees. Um, well, leading up to the November election, um, a couple of big things happened. One was um, President Nixon has re has resigned. You know, leader leader of the Republican nationally, um, and not only that, but uh, uh, I need to check my calendar. But uh, so, within a month or so of the general election, the new president Gerald Ford pardons Nixon. And Alexander has has told me told me again recently about the day uh, he and Honey uh, Alexander were having dinner at home. The phone rings, and Senator Baker, who, who has been his mentor, you know, for several years, uh, was calling, and he said, "Well, what do you think this effect this will have?" Well, um, Alexander had not been tuned into the news. He said, "Well, what do you mean? What's happened?" He says, "Well." President Ford has pardoned Richard Nixon. Well, they could, you know, immediately sense that this is going to throw a lot of their political calculations into a cocked hat. As Lamar said later, uh, he sensed that every Republican in uh, the East Tennessee mountains proceeded to come down trying to identify who was the Republican nominee for anything, any office, because they wanted to vote against him for, for that. So, mm -hmm. This created, obviously, some upheaval. Um, uh, Blanton then, who was the 23% nominee of his party, then beats Alexander. And so you had this succession of, of, of you know, sort of oddball um, in terms of, you know, conventional politics uh, happen. And then um, in November, first week of November, Alexander loses to Blanton. And who who has the office for four more years? Uh, he thought. Well, Blanton, of course, was for various reasons was immediately of interest to the FBI, and um, there there turned out to be a lot of uh, you know bad behavior uh, on the part of uh, not just the governor's office. I mean, it, it was the clemency for cash scandal that emanated from the governor's staff and so forth that uh, caught, you know, pu public attention, most of all. But there were other crimes that were being investigated, turned out, um, in terms of um, state property disposition, uh, highway construction. Uh, I interviewed uh, a former FBI agent in writing that book, and um, and by the way, those guys are pretty good. They don't give up much, even <laughs> <laughs> Even in retirement, but um, uh, let alone when they're in the active service. But uh, he said, well, you know, Keel, the, uh, uh, all the uh, public attention came to the clemency business. But in terms of dollar value, that was really the least of the trouble. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the, the serious money by way of bribes and so forth was in the uh, highway construction business. And, uh, and, uh, and indeed, there were people who convicted for that and went to prison, including uh, Governor Blanton's brother um, and others. So anyway, this caused a big uh, kind of rip in the, in the norm of how things got done uh, on Capitol Hill and Nashville. 
Um, and so you suddenly had this uh, uh, outlier Republican governor, I mean, a young man, uh, Alexander was at that time, uh, in a, in a uh, building full of Democrats. And yet he had to fashion a way forward uh, so that there could be, um, you know, in the framework of divided government, uh, progress to be made. And he did, and it was. So that's sort of the nutshell. Yeah. So what we had, uh, and you can fact check me on this, is in 1978, uh, be- beginning of an inflection point uh, in the life of the country, the Republican Party uh, is beginning to become the more the de facto national presidential party. Uh, Nixon has won two terms. Uh, President Ford nearly wins uh, in a close race against President Carter. President Reagan's about to win two terms that will lead President Bush would lead to another. So that's 12 years of one, one party Republican rule. And this in Tennessee, which is border state, but had produced in the 1950s and 60s, a vice presidential running mate on the Democratic side, Estes Kefauver. Uh, you had Al Gore Sr., uh, you know, a, a big Democratic state for a long time. It's shifting. It's becoming, to be anachronistic, it's becoming more purple. And what you had in 1978, at kind of the heart of this, is the Democratic leadership in the state goes to the Republican governor-elect in order to swear him in early in order to remove a corrupt Democratic incumbent. Yeah. Remarkably statesmanlike thing to do. And I hate to say it, but kind of unimaginable today, uh, at least if you, fought, if you live in the sort of the partisan laser tag world. Um, so you had something in the DNA of the state that was about... M- a devotion to a kind of constitutional conversation, right? That the good of the state outweighed the uh, particular partisan impulses of the moment. And that, if you agree, that is sort of sets the stage for your argument about that era in Tennessee politics where there was an immense amount, relatively speaking, of bipartisan cooperation. No. So I'm wondering when you look back on that period, do you see um, what do you see as the causes, the underlying sources of what was a functional unity uh, without being sentimental? It just was right. Uh, why was Tennessee different in those years in the in-between times? Well, you you used a good word a moment ago when you kind of put Tennessee in its position as a border state. So, you know, one of the stories that uh, it's important to remember, Tennessee was the last state in the Confederacy to come out of the Union right before Civil War hostilities broke out and was then um, the the first state back in as soon as the the hostilities uh, ended. And uh, and that's an important fact. Um, the um, is it this this sort of uh, ambivalence about what is our position in the country, and um, you know, and of course, out of that conflict, the Civil War, and um, 
you know, slavery versus abolition politics um, that hit Tennessee squarely. Um, you had a lot of a legacy, I might say, left over from that. I mean, why East Tennessee traditionally in my lifetime has voted uh, Republican? Well, this was the it, this was the party of, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, generally pro-abolition, anti-slavery, whereas middle and West Tennessee, you know, we've got this, we have to remember this strange uh, elongated state and how all of the, you know, the economy and the agricultural base worked. Um, and, and, and really in some ways to this day, um, I mean, I'm being very general here, but um, those voting patterns in a big, you know, sort of heavy handed way of looking at it, have uh, remained. And so now there are exceptions here and there. Um, but the, um, and then in terms of what changed and kind of what we think of as the great transition in Tennessee politics was the, was how in the face of that history, that, you know, voting tradition, if you will, um, you, you had a lot, there were, there were untold numbers of um, traditional Democrats who switched and became Republicans. Now, there are a lot of, that's a whole other story, but, uh, and that's certainly national in scope and not just our state-based story. But, um, you know, there was the, um, uh, in the in the 1960s, there was the civil rights movement and the reaction to that. Um, there was certainly the Vietnam War and the reaction to that. And then the reaction to that reaction, and so, so many people who had been, as I say, traditional Democrats became, you know, voting Republicans, and they've remained that way for a long time. So that that changed the, um, you know, the dynamic. Of, what, what I like to say is that, you know, as, as interesting as elections are, and they are important, um, it's what happens between elections that is the most important. You know, I mean. What are the people, the men and women who become elected leaders do uh, once they're in with their power? Um, and so um, now it was important during that period, that transition, that you had um, uh, important uh, Democrats. Even so, I think of uh, Ned McWhorter from West Tennessee, uh, who who kind of continued to go by their own lights and and became leaders in the party, and that would become <clears throat> so. so that there were. There, I'm I'm just trying to sort of paint the picture that there was a whole lot more going on in American politics than what was happening in Tennessee. But Tennessee became um, an important story. So we have a period of uh, significant uh, bipartisan, even if it's just defined as elected people, right? Uh, you have. Um, Republicans serving with Democrats, you know, uh, cats and dogs, you know, uh, you've got uh, governors, uh, Alexander to <clears throat> McWhorter uh, to Sunquist, right? Um, so you, you have uh, these voting patterns uh, that are producing a curiously, from the perspective of 2022, a curiously bipartisan uh, electorate. Um, one of my favorite questions, and I pose it <clears throat> pose it to you, 
is that in 1990, in this state that's uh, able to discern somewhat based on personality, somewhat based on results, uh, sometimes the Democrats win, sometimes Republican win, Republicans win. 1990, Al Gore Jr. carries all 95 counties when he's running for his second term in the United States Senate, a job that, again, in this climate, it's hard to imagine. Howard Baker, Republican majority leader, future White House chief of staff to Ronald Reagan, his seat is taken by Al Gore Jr., who becomes a Democratic vice president and this remarkable global figure about about climate. So, as you you know, as you've seen in your work <clears throat> and articulated, you have this. It's just an interesting microcosm, uh, and and remarkable seeming things happen. <clears throat> so Al wins all ninety five counties. I actually asked him recently who ran against him in nineteen ninety, and he couldn't remember, <laughs> which tell you which no politician has ever forgotten uh, who who ran against them. Ten years later, the loss of Tennessee to George W. Bush costs Al Gore the Electoral College and the presidency. What happened in those 10 years? I I was interested in your comment that you were recently talking to Al Gore. Uh, I I, I spoke with him uh, just last week and uh, really for an interview relating to a a new book project that I've I've been working on. And he he was very helpful. and um, so he uh, and I think who that was in 1990 on the Republican side may have been Victor Ash. Now, that was 84. No one can remember this. <laughs> if neither you nor Al Gore can remember this. <laughs> or, or Al, you, Victor ran, got, Ambassador Ash, Mayor Ash, he ran the first time. Yeah. OK. OK. Um, I'm the only person who cares about this. <laughs> on the whole planet. Well, obviously. Yeah. Um, um, I've gotten to know a fella who, who you may know and know him better than I do, but uh, Professor Tony Badger, uh, he's a Brit from the UK, and he, and he became um, the biographer of Senator Gore Sr. Some people who knew both men would say that uh, a form of what happened is Senator Gore Sr., the father, uh, actually, it befell the son. And when they, when somebody says that, they're usually referring to um, the distraction of national issues, uh, meaning a distraction away from uh, yeah. state roots and so forth. And and that was said of Al Gore Jr. Um, when he ran for president. I think some of that, and, and, and in uh, the case of Gore Sr., there was a lot having to do with Vietnam War, foreign relations, um, that uh, caused this sort of perceived, uh, uh, you know, breakage in terms of how close he remained to his Tennessee roots. You know, the statement has been made that if Gore had carried his own home state of Tennessee, which he did not do, then Florida and all of that, you know, Bush and Gore would not have mattered. It wouldn't have gotten that, it would not have gotten that far. So I think that's part of the answer. I think you had the way in which the Republican campaigns were conducted, you know, and, and. Well, I think for what it's worth, I have thought a lot about this. I'm trying to get some Vanderbilt graduate student or someone to write about this. No one has taken me up on it. Uh, 
I call it the 95 county problem, right? To, to carry all 95 counties. And so he does it in 1990. And then you think, okay, well, something happened in those 10 years. So you think, well, he was becoming, the state's becoming more conservative. Uh, you know, he's out of sync. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a proposition. Okay, but in 1992 and in 1996, the day before yesterday, in American political terms, both Clinton and Gore carry the state for the presidency. So something happened between, arguably, between 96 and 2000. And I submit that it was the, which you've alluded to, it was the increasing nationalization of campaigns that Fox News goes on in 1996. Talk radio is uh, as from 1987, 88 forward is, is significant. Um, I think uh, Jim Sasser would tell you that one of the reasons he had trouble winning a fourth term uh, was because of the assault weapons ban vote, the crime bill vote, uh, the guns in 1994. And that was being hammered uh, as a wedge issue as opposed to a substantive one. Um, and so in an w- interesting way, I think you can see at least manifestations of this nationalized politics we have now in Tennessee with the story of these very important American figures, Al Gore and uh, Lamar Alexander, who goes on to become a senator in this divided, divided era. And I think what a lot of us citizens, broadly put, are trying to figure out is without making the perfect the goal is can a what can we do to create a more at least vaguely rational political conversation where reflexive partisanship is not automatically rewarded partisanship is fine Right. I mean, that that's that's popular government. But my argument, for instance, is that reflective partisanship that is okay. My first thought is to be with my team and that's okay. But I at least want to listen about the issue because it's just possible to quote your old friend and and someone I admired enormously, Senator Baker. The other fellow might be right every once in a while. And so I think there's this, I think one of the things that comes out of your work, um, certainly in coup and certainly in crossing the aisle, is that there was this tendency, not dispositive, not universal, but just real and relevant enough to think, huh, the other fellow might be right, right? This guy, this, for instance, this mayor from Nashville, Phil Bredesen. You know, he's done a good job up there. You know, we're going to say the fact that we had a Democratic governor into uh, 2010 is kind of remarkable in this climate. It's unthinkable today, almost. Well, I'd like to uh, seize on a point you made just a moment ago, and that is the nationalization of our politics. Um, And and we can talk about Bredesen in this category, too, because. Uh, so uh, Phil Bredesen, a very successful mayor of Tennessee's capital city, had been a successful governor. 
Uh, I mean, cooperated. I mean, he continued to work across the aisle, in particular with Governor Bill Haslam on education improvement and policy and so forth. But um, and yet when when he ran for the U.S. Senate, he he lost by a, a significant margin to the Republican nominee. Uh, and it wasn't much about policy issues. <clears throat> um, it had a lot to do with the fact that President Trump came into Tennessee three times and did that thing he does with his rallies. And I remember watching the first of those three on TV um, and uh, the Republican nominee, Marsha Blackburn, di didn't uh, hardly got a word in because uh, I think Trump only gave her about two minutes to say her piece. And he went on for 45 or more minutes. And, um, and I think that's just sort of one tip of the iceberg about how things are so different today. The other thing you said, John, that, that rings the big bell with me is how um, the nationalization of issues and politics has also been um, made po more possible by a falling away of the traditional role of newspapers. I mean, you're, um, you and I both started mm -hmm. our careers working for Tennessee newspapers and um, you know, I mean, there was a time which we can well remember when if you're in the state legislature um, and you show up for a session in the morning, probably a copy of the um, National Tennessean is there on your desk with whatever they've chosen to put on the banner headline, um, Chattanooga newspaper and so forth. That doesn't much happen anymore. And that leads to kind of the other thing, which in more recent times has been manifested by the, uh, you know, we can call it gerrymandering or we can call it redistricting. But, but what that has done in Tennessee, among other states, of course, has been the um, causing us, kind of the rest of us to realize how closely gerrymandering relates to extremism. Mm -hmm. This legislative agenda um, in Tennessee, um, largely agreed to by Governor Bill Lee on everything from uh, guns to uh, uh, abortion politics and so forth, uh, has been, yeah, you can't really avoid the word extremism. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's one thing has led to another because. Uh, a lot of folks who serve in the legislature now, and, and I would apply this also to Governor Lee and his office, I don't think they feel like they need to explain very much. Uh, there's not a particularly curious um, yeah. Capitol Hill press corps as there used to be. Um, and, um, and then now we're about to have this uh, sort of whole uh, ballot of congressional elections based on the congressional redistricting that is pretty darn weird. I mean, Nashville will, will not have within Davidson County a congressman, unless there's an upset or two, who lives in Davidson County. And um, now we'll see how that plays out. And I'm not trying to predict that, but it's um, the primaries already have been quite, quite odd. So one of the things that you've written about is um the connection between this sense of unity in the state in the late uh, 
20th century, early 21st century, and the prosperity of the state. That is, Lamar Alexander goes to Japan to get investments. Uh, the, uh, the ability of Tennessee, like every other state, which desperately wants jobs and investment, it's, it's been a pretty good story. And you've argued and the folks you've written about have argued that their capacity to present this, we're not, they wouldn't put it this way, but we're not crazy. Right. Uh, you, know, we, you know, these are this is a state where people of different political persuasions can feel comfortable. As you go around uh, Nashville and, and the state today, is there any anxiety that because of the factors you've mentioned, the increasing uh, ideological purity of the state legislature? Uh, is there any sense that perhaps businesses uh, are going to look at Tennessee not as a place that uh, is a, is fairly congenial to both sides uh, and might begin to see it as so ruby red that they have to take that into consideration? Do you hear that chatter at all? Not only that, but we, uh, we've seen it happen. I mean, the, I guess the most famous case is the uh, state of North Carolina, where yeah. um, how do you properly label public restrooms, for goodness sakes, you know, right. that has played out in terms of uh, large employers making decisions to go somewhere else, you know, and, and in that, and you, you make a good story about Tennessee and they saw how um, Alexander had in the first place. Well, actually, if you step back uh, one big step f- further into the past, uh, it was actually a Democrat, Jimmy Carter. Yeah who was president, urged all the governors. Um, and Alexander tells this story, he remembers it very vividly, going to a kind of National Governors Association uh, 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 luncheon or something at the White House, President Carter. And, and President Carter said, uh, governors, go to Japan and, and help us urge them to, to make in the U.S. what they sell in the U.S., that sounds a very simple proposition, but it meant the world. And so Alexander and other governors took him up on it. Um, and, when, um, and that played out, that continued to play out. Of course, you know, Tennessee became the winner of that lottery, but with a lot of hard, diligent, and bipartisan cooperation um, with uh, Democrats across the state. But, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful story about partisanship in the – in the late 70s and early 80s. Keel, I'm going to ask you, uh, what if, <laughs> what if anything gives you hope today for the future of American democracy? Well, I think my personal hope and my hope for the country is that we, we get to a, a point of um, reconciling what I still fundamentally believe is the feeling and belief of most of our countrymen, and that is that uh, the rule of law matters, that we we need to hold our public officials to account. I mean, you don't have to get to the subject uh, just yet of Donald Trump and what's he done and what should he uh, be held accountable for to, to know that that's true. That, that we, and so a lot of, so I, as I get, I wrote in a column last week that I, as I move around, I'm picking up on a lot of anxiety, uh, unsettledness, um, 
in our country, in our communities to, to the point of, uh, you know, it, it, so you can't help feeling that something is wrong here. Something is wrong. And, and I think it plays out. Um, I, I'm just now starting to read uh, John Martin's new book. Yeah. Which um, so far is extraordinary. Yeah, it's a great book. And he makes the, uh, and his co-author make the point that uh, uh, this nationalization of our issues uh, is so profound and, and, and really so harmful, so destructive uh, in, in, in the way it plays out that um, communities, leaders need to help us get back to that. Now, I think we've, uh, you know, this is not the same. This is very different. And you're correct in pointing this out, of course, that, uh, you know, the, the stories that we tell ourselves about what happened in Tennessee, a border state, in the 80s and 90s, uh, was, um, was, uh, you know, is relevant to, if for only reasons of contrast to understand our current day, but that's true. And so, um, uh, you know, reapportionment, redistricting the, this last time around did turn into significant gerrymandering. And, and so you not only have I mean, there's always going to be a race. There's always going to be a winner, a loser, maybe. But, but um, what the what the victors do with their um, newly won power uh, makes all the difference. One of the reasons I, I believe that it's what happens between elections that's the most uh, important. And what, um, if I'm understanding him right, what John Martin has been saying is that uh, you know you have this unusual t- time now where uh, it's not enough to win the election and to get into office, but, but uh, you know, recently elected uh, governors, uh, even mayors, certainly school board members in Tennessee, because the apparatus has now supported making local school board races partisan. So that what you, uh, you, you see them doing is kind of doubling down and and uh, 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 governing, okay, you, you won the election, but rather than move back to the middle on policy to have reasonable discussions, they are steering hard right, and that's happened in Tennessee. So I'd like to see that corrected um, would be my preference. Is there one thing as you move around and you think just in your personal life, is there anything that gives you hope that there is a capacity for unity is there a person uh, some some sign you see that you know what if we can do more of that we're going to be okay uh, one person does not come to mind unfortunately at the moment but you know we're going to have to save ourselves this is i was in a uh, to me an interesting discussion yesterday what about what is the future of the democratic party in tennessee um and uh, if, if it has one, uh, and I was reminded how when I was a young reporter at the Tennessean newspaper in the late 60s, I was conscious that there were Republicans <laughs> around, you know, I mean, none in my house at home, but um, but um, and, and that the the notion of a Tennessee Republican Party, which had been prominent previously, uh, was no longer had really kind of sunk to the level of theory, you know, it was sort of a concept and you had some good people who, who hope to make it a reality again. But my point is that um, uh, I think that the Democrats need to understand that's where their party is now. 
I mean, this is why we're seeing uh, on the part of other, you know, kind of the broader public, so much discussion, right or wrong, about the idea of a third party. You know, um, this is why people say that, and 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 the sort of establishment needs to hear that. And so it's not just a question of, okay, Bredesen got beat by Blackburn, and and she'll be in office for X years. It's not just a question of um, who will run, you know, who might be willing to take that on, because that's already a pretty uphill discussion to have with anybody. You know, no, nobody wants to lose like that. Nobody wants to have to withstand that kind of campaign against you. Um, it, it's it's a it's a it's a project, uh, as I see it, that has to unfold on multiple tracks. I mean, it it, it is about money too. Uh, fundraising and, and, and leadership, and it's also about ideas. And um, so that, that really gives me concern about our country. Keel Hunt, thank you, my friend, for your work and for taking this time with us. And you, uh, we hope you'll come back when everything is fine again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, let's wait for that day. <laughs> thank you, John. Great. Thanks, Keel.